I'm also going to talk about the glory, but I'm going to talk about it from a slightly different aspect. I was mad, not really mad, but in a good way mad. She was already reading all my scriptures <laughs> in the earlier session, so. But uh, I'm glad she brought it out because I'm not going to go over to the New Testament with it, but it's a great thing for us too because the New Testament, of course, is the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But the aspect of his glory that I want to talk about is an aspect that I, I thought about a long time ago, and he dropped this thought into my mind, but I never really went and developed it. Uh, but I thought now was a good time to bring it out. And I want to speak from the theme, Moments of Eternity. Moments of Eternity. Um, I, I used to always make the phrase or say the phrase, Lord, would you come into my situation or come into my room or could you meet me at the church or could you meet me at the altar? And we've, I found out that it actually needs to be the other array around, not so much him stepping down into our situation, but us stepping into his situation that it is the, the very nature and the surrounding that we're in, our circumstance, our trial is tainted and he has no fellowship with sin. So in order us, for us to be transformed, we actually have to be elevated into his throne room where everything is pure, everything is holy, everything is anointed. And our situation will not allow for that to happen because it's so tainted. So that, that's my idea that I want to portray today. Let's get Leviticus 9, verse number 22. It says, Aaron lifted his hands over the people and blessed them. Having completed the rituals of the absolution offering, the whole burnt offering and the peace offering, he came down from the altar. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of God appeared to all the people. Fire blazed out from God and consumed the whole burnt offering and the fat pieces on the altar. When all the people saw it happen, they cheered loudly and then fell down, bowing in reverence. So we see that there's a rejoicing and an immediate reverence. So the Ark of the Covenant meant the presence of God was there and only certain people were allowed to touch it. You had to be in the, in the Levitical priesthood to even handle the presence of God. So what was in the Ark of the Covenant was three things in the, in the tabernacle. Number one was the table of stones, the tables of stone. Number two was Aaron's rod that budded. And number three was the manna from heaven. And it was from above this mercy seat that God would meet with Moses. And this is the first piece of furniture that God gave instruction to build. God has to be the base of our faith. We, we can't start with the altar. If we presented Christ in the fashion that he really wanted to be presented, we wouldn't see so many people walk away. But because we don't present the ark to them first, and we start with the brazen altar, 
then the people don't understand that it's actually God that I'm really trying to get into. Not a system, not, not a sacrifice, not, not any, it's, it's God. That's why the greatest command is hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength, with all your soul. If you can get that principle, your life is gonna be a lot easier. We've been hypnotized by religion. How does somebody come out of hypnosis? And God has to do something miraculous to bring us out of hypnosis because even the children of Israel were hypnotized by the Egyptian culture. From the minute they left, they were missing it. Oh, Moses, we should have stayed there. You know, we, we had it good. Well, if you had it so good, why did you cry out to God for help? Because God wouldn't have come to Moses unless he heard the cry of the people. He said, Moses, I hear the cry of my people, I'm, and, and I am come down to help them. Sometimes we don't like the way God does it. I, I wanted deliverance, but I really didn't want it this way. I mean, I wanted to be strengthened, and I wanted wisdom, but, but did it take this to get the wisdom that I have? You're going to need experience. We, we say that all the time. In, in Romans 5, that word worketh and all of that, patience worketh experience, that, that word worketh means that it will accomplish what it meant to do. Before you can move to the next step, oh, you're going to pass this first test. The Bible says in Genesis that God communed with Adam in the cool of the day. When that relationship was severed, we finally get here to the tabernacle where God says, okay, it's been long enough where I haven't been able to come down and commune with my creation on a daily basis. And it really didn't mean the cool of the day, but the cool was, was ruach, spirit. It means that whatever Adam needed at that particular time, God would provide. Whatever the day brought on. He would come to him in the spirit of what he needed, the cool or the spirit of the day. And at this time, the children of Israel, more than anything, needed somebody to bring them out of false worship. To bring them out of a place to where they had placed all of their trust and all of their confidence in something that was not God-ordained. That he never meant for them to place their trust in. So here in Leviticus 9, we see the establishment of God's presence. And once they offered sacrifices, burnt offering and sacrifices, the Bible says that the Lord came down in a cloud and in a fire he consumed. Now when he first came to Moses, he appeared in, unto Moses, and this is where I got my thought for this from, in a burning bush. He said the, fire, the bush burned, but it was not consumed. It burned, but the leaves were still there. It still had its freshness. It was still vibrant. It was still alive. There was nothing that could kill it. But the only thing that God took out of the bush was time. So when we enter into our moments of prayer and worship, that's why I wanted last night to be a, a great preparation. When we enter into our seasons of prayer, God is actually placing you for a moment into eternity he's given you access while you're still here he's given you divine access into his throne room 
All right, let's get when they transferred the presence. Now let's go to the temple. Let's get 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8 and 10. When the priests left the holy place, a cloud filled the temple of God, and the priests couldn't carry out their priestly duties because of the cloud. The glory of God filled the temple of God. When God steps in, most of the time, all you can do is just be still. I've said it time and time again, if, if, if you are acting out and all the attention is on you and you twirling and rolling and yelling and all that stuff, it's a good chance you're really not in the pristine presence. You're emotional, you're excited, you're happy about what, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you heard, but when truly his real glory comes in, there's nothing you can do. Like I said last night, there's no ministering, there's no singing, there's no playing. There's a still, couldn't say nothing. Like Natalie said earlier, how often do we leave speechless? Well, you can't say nothing. I mean, I've had that experience, not nearly as often as I would like to have it, but I have heard some messages and had some visitations where you say, oh my God, I can't even talk right now. Those are the moments in your life. If you look over your life right now, just think. The moments where your life took the, the largest change toward God, what kind of worship experience did you have? to get that and then what have you allowed to come in and to block you from from getting back to that worship are you expecting some man some woman some preacher some deacon some minister to to get you there i i can't do it for anybody i can exhort i can encourage but th there's no way that i can place you in God's presence. I, I, I can't stir your emotions up enough to push you into his throne room. There ain't that much gift in the body of Christ. It's every man for himself, every woman for themselves. And why we want to rely on somebody to excite us, the praise leader got to prod and beg. And most services that you see are nothing but cheerleading sessions. And we talk, we talk about the rappers now. Ain't nothing happening in the rap concert that hardly ain't happening in the church, minus the cuss words. Come on, put your hands up. In the concert, they say, say, ho. In the church, they say, say, glory. In the concert, they may come up with a new dance, and they'll, they'll do it in front of you. Say, all right, catch on to this. You come to the church. All right, let's do two-step. We got to think about who's really driving us. Then we wonder why when we leave, nothing, ain't nothing happening. You just went to a concert. You just went to a cheerleading concert. You got caught up with the crowd and it felt good while you were there, but it had no transformation power to it to take you through the rest of the week, the rest of the month. In the first century church, that was the thing that set the, the church apart from the rest of the philosophers and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and the gainsayers, it was the presence of God. 
That was the thing. They said, oh, we can't fight against this. Have you seen what these people can do? We're talking at dinner. What kind of connection must they have had that when they walk by somebody, just their shadow passing by healed somebody? What kind of connection is that and where has it gone? I'm not saying it's non-existent at all, but I'm saying we, uh, we should see it more. Especially when there's more of us now than it was in the first century. You ought to be hearing about this stuff. Don't you know that if folks start walking by folk with just a shadow healing them, that much connection to God, that much power working in their life, don't you think uh, something to be on Channel 7 News? I don't know about you, but I want to, to, to have that power that when I lay my hands on somebody, they recover. That the words that I speak, they actually transform. They actually get in and, and they, they begin to work. And it's not cliche-ish and it's not empty words to it, with no meaning to them. One thing that was different about the temple than the tabernacle is that with the tabernacle, the ark of God was square and the angels faced one another in this kind of pattern from the front view. But in the temple... Solomon made the, not only the angels much bigger, but it seems like he rotated the position of the angels to where before when they were looking into the chest that contained God's word, now they were looking out into the holy place where the ministers worked. The angels' attention has been moved from just the throne of God to what God is doing in his church. I got a scripture for that. We'll get to it in a minute. For this one, the Bible says that while they were bringing the ark to Solomon's temple, that along the way they were, they were making so many sacrifices that nobody could keep, keep up. They were giving it up, so to speak. They were confessing. They were giving glory to God on the way. So in the tabernacle, you had Aaron's rod, you had the word of God, and you had the hidden manna from God. But in this temple, it specifically says in 1 Kings that the only thing that was in the ark was the two tablets of the word of God. What happened to Aaron's rod that budded, and what happened to the hidden manna? Those things were placed in the ark because of God's judgment on Israel. We look at the Aaron's rod that budded and the hidden manna that God sent out of the sky. Oh, that was a miracle. That was, oh, God was just working. But the, the only reason God had to do those things is because the folks were fussing and complaining. He was going to feed them. He was going to make a way and provide and protect them from all of their enemies. But every time they got in a, in a tight spot, Oh, Lord, you, Moses, you didn't brought us out here to starve and we ain't got nothing to eat. And, and God said, stand back, Moses, because I'm about to strike them down right now. Just go and stand back. Get out the strike zone because I'm about to let them have it. And every time Moses would get down on his face and say, Lord, please don't do it. I, I believe that there's some folks I pray for that I said, Lord, please don't do it right now. 
You, you can see them headed in, in, in going down the wrong path. And then God said, okay, then I'm just going to send down manna. That was a judgment. The manna from heaven, while a miracle, it was a judgment. Aaron's rod that budded, while it was a miracle to prove who God's true prophet was, it was a judgment because he only had to prove who the true prophet was because of their unbelief. So now when God is bringing them back and, and giving them a place of worship again and a place where they could come and really commune with God again, he says, all right, now this is a new generation. So they don't need those things in the ark that showed my judgment on the former generation. We could start fresh with this one, so just put the word in there. When the ark was in place, as soon as they placed the ark in place, I don't know how long they marched from the, from the, tab, uh, the temporary tent that David built for the uh, ark to where the Solomon's temple was, but as they sacrificed, there was nothing happening. <coughs> nothing happened. But as soon as they placed God where he belonged, as soon as that ark settled down in the holy place, in the holy of holies, and as soon as they came out, the Bible says the glory cloud appeared. We wondering when God's going to allow the cloud to come up, when he's going to show up and show us the, the, the anointed Shekinah glory, the cloud in the room. I don't know if some of you have seen it. I've seen it a few times in my life. And again, I like to see it more. <laughs> but it's when God is finally back in his place. When will we put him back in the holy of holies? Now, he doesn't dwell anymore with, in buildings and tents made with hands, but now he dwells in you and I by the Holy Ghost. That means that my soul, where he dwells, is equivalent to the Old Testament Holy of Holies. So if there is no glory, then there's somebody else occupying his space. Something else has got your heart. Something else has got your mind. Something else has your attention. What is it? Do, do you really love him? Mm. If we will go to the Lord with acceptable sacrifices, we will come out with his glory. And without his glory, there can be no real spiritual change. Without his glory, we can have no real proof of his acceptance of our sacrifice. The fire didn't come down by itself. The fire proceeded out of the glory cloud. Folk don't believe some of us are saved because there's no glory happening in our life. There's nothing saying, oh, I see that the Lord has him consumed. The Lord has taken his fat and consumed it. I thought about it. I had to throw a can of grease away. I had my cousin over to the house. And uh, she took my mind back to my mother where you, after you cook fish or you cook chicken or you cook bacon, they just put the grease in the canister and just set it on top of the stove. So I'm looking at this, this can of fat sitting on my, my, on my kitchen counter in a can. And I thought about the fat that we have. How it should have been consumed on the altar, 
But no, no, no. We, we, we took it, poured it in the can, and, and, and we set it there. And what do we do with it? We use it for another food to cook. So now the fat that we had in one area now spills over into our other things that we consume in life. Oh, Lord, help us get rid of the fat. The fat has to be consumed. <clears throat> Exodus 29 and 42 says, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto you, and there will I meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. I heard somebody once say, well, not once, on several occasions, you're desecrating the house of God by wearing that. And the thing, even if the outfit was crazy, why are you more concerned about this building than actually the real building? What they're saying is you're desecrating our temple. When you really should be concerned, if you're concerned about the person, you don't want to present your temple like that. But I never hear, oh, you just desecrating the house of God. How can you desecrate a building? In order to desecrate it, it has to be holy. The only thing holy now is the church of the living God. To the utensils and everything used in the tabernacle, all those were made holy by the, the anointing that they poured on it. The, the only thing that God poured the Holy Ghost on is us. See, there, there, there's something. Let, let's get Luke 19, verse number 43. It says, your enemies will pile up earth against your, your walls and encircle you and close in on you and crush you to the ground and your children within you. Your enemies will not leave one stone upon another for you have rejected the opportunity God offered you. It said he, you, you missed your visitation. Because you weren't alert when God wanted to visit you, you're going to come to ruins. It's horrible. Especially when he, he's giving this offer to us. Lord, can we have it like it was first poured out? So the, the tabernacle is sanctified by his glory. It's not sanctified by what they do, how they do it. If you, now I want to say this right so y'all can get it right, y'all, and say, oh, you, I don't believe in living loose lives. I believe that because God saved us, we, we want to live for him. But if you cannot be saved by works, what makes you think you can be lost by works? If you can't be saved by works, what makes us think that we can forfeit our salvation by not doing certain works? You're saved by grace, period. All of the other stuff I do because I appreciate what God's done for me and I want to be a witness for him. So it's sanctified. I am sanctified by his glory. I'm not sanctified because I don't go here and I don't go there. That is not sanctification. I'm not sanctified because I don't club. 
I'm sanctified because he, he, he visited me. And, and he moved into my soul and set up residence there. Hmm. Psalm 19 and 14 says, may my spoken words and unspoken thoughts be pleasing even to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Many times the words of our mouth are very different than the meditation of our hearts. But he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. See, the, the, a lot of us have a hard time with relationships because I know what your mouth is saying, but some, your actions and your heart is just not following the words that are coming out of your mouth. That's why I said, be careful when you say, I love the Lord. When you don't really love the Lord, you love what he can do for you. You love what, what, how he can make you feel. You, you, you love how he can pay your rent. Or you might just love the religious system that you call the Lord. Like I said, when Israel built the golden calf, they called it Elohim. They called it by the right thing, but it was different. I never went and studied, but I, I heard, I'm not going to say that it's in the book because I got to go check it. But I heard a preacher say that when he, called, when he made them destroy the golden calf, when they melted the, the metal down, they melted and it went into the creek. Well, the, that creek or that river is the, their only supply of water. So he made them consume what they worshiped. By making them melt it down and putting it in their water supply, he made them eat and drink what they worshiped. And a lot of our frustration is, it's simple principle in the Bible. Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Principles is simple. If you worship it, fine, drink it. And when you get sick from it, then you're going to come to me and ask me to heal you. Why don't you worship that which you thought could heal you in the beginning? Oh, my. So our words in our heart have to be in sync. If they're not in sync, there's a problem. And how, how many of us, personally, now we like to come into church and say, oh, she's a liar and he's a liar and they're a liar. But how many of us have got up and just lied, testified right to God's face? If God knows all things, why would he have to ask Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answered so quick. Now, honestly, his first response should have been, Lord, you know if I love you or not. But twice, of course I love you. You know I love you. Jesus didn't want to hear, you know that I love you. Jesus wanted to hear, you know, Lord, whether I love you or not. Sometimes we want to put the negative connotation and Lord, there's a possibility that I might not love you. So I'm just going to leave that part off. His mouth said it, but his heart was saying, I, I don't know. And obviously he didn't love him to a certain extent because he denied him and cursed as he did it. 
So Isaiah 29 says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me. Honor. They speak well of me. They don't blaspheme my name. They don't talk bad and say God is doing this and God is punishing me. They speak great swelling words about me. They make me look grandor to the people. I look big when they talk about me. But their heart, the heart can't say anything about me. In fact, he says the heart is not just distant or the heart. He didn't say the heart was hard. He said it was far. Nowhere close. How could you be? Now, the psalmist said, where shall I go from your presence? Wherever I go, you are there. So there must be a total different realm in the heart to where you can be far from the God where he says that he's everywhere. How could your heart be that detached from an omnipresent God? But the heart is far. Something far is something that I can't reach. The, The almighty God can't reach some of our hearts. But he spoke the world and the creation into existence. How deceitful is this heart? How wicked is this heart? The hearts are far. And he says, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Okay, y'all turn to it. Isaiah 29 and 13. We're going to read through it again. I could take my time with this. We got the room for a while. But the the glory will not be revealed until you place God back where he belongs. And many of us place our kids above God. Some of us place our spouses before God. Some of us place our parents before God. Some are friends before God. Some are, are, are pastors before God. That is not their place. There's a place where only God resides and there was nothing in the holy of holies but the presence of god and the altar of incense there's no room in there for anybody else i'll read through it again the lord says these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men this is Isaiah 29 and 13. I'm reading from the NIV. That means that I, I go to you to find out how I ought to respond to God. My job as a disciple of Christ is to represent him so according to my own experience that it prompts you to want to serve him. Once you get into the relationship with Christ, how you how you walk with Christ is none of my business we've taken the personal savior away from people there's no way God can be that to you he can only be this this and that this is what I know you need to listen to me and this is what God is when he says that God can do exceeding abundantly above all that I can ask or think So why would I put limits 
on God. Why would I limit my own power? You, you know that we have access. We have, the Bible says we have access. I'll get to it in Hebrews. We have access, not to the president of the United States, not to the governor of California. We have access to the throne of him that created you. And if you have access directly to him, why would you want to go to the president? Why would you want to go to this one or that one? There are some things that only God is going to be able to help you with. All we can do is share our experience and share our level of faith with you. The mercy seat, the place where God vowed to meet and commune with Moses. The mercy seat was the place where the high priest was to enter once a year with blood to make atonement. The mercy seat was placed above. It sealed the contents of the ark. So the only way to get to the word and for the tabernacle to get to the miracles and the provisions of God is through mercy. You can't just go up and open up the chest. The, the thing that sealed the presence of God was his mercy. And if you wanted to look and see what was in there, and actually they were not allowed to really go in and look. Now he's given us access to go and look. All they actually could do was sprinkle the blood from their sacrifice on the mercy. All they could do is say, Lord, I, I know I'm messed up, but I'm just going to lay this on your mercy seat. It was the blood from the sacrifice, the thing that replaced their sin. The, that, that thing which represented their sin was given over to the mercy of God. We need God's glory. Consider that the Lord doesn't necessarily come into our presence, but rather allows us to enter into his presence. He allows us to penetrate eternity while still on in time in order to equip us with everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now, when the Lord allows us interest into his presence, we are elevated into his throne room. We have access. And the Bible says he's high and lifted up. I think she talked about, I think she mentioned dark mountains. A mountain is something that I mean, and, and we live in the Antelope Valley, so we got to drive through all those mountains and we weave in and out. And, and if you were to stand in, in, in the valley and to look toward the north, all you would see was mountains. You wouldn't think that there was an Antelope, Antelope Valley back there, that there's a Mojave Desert back there. All you would see is mountains. So a mountain is something that obstructs view and actually prevents your traveling to get to the other side or what's on the other side of that destination. It presents, basically, a, it's, it's a blockage of vision. But when God calls you and you get access into his throne room, from a satellite point of view, you see the mountains, but you also see both sides of the mountain. He wants to give us moments of eternity. So when we're in our worship, he ought to be letting you know that it's going to be all right. Oh, you're looking at a mountain right now, but if you just stay at my feet, there's something on the other side of it. But when you know what's on the other side, 
Abraham was called a hero of faith because he went after what God showed him. He called him out for something. He didn't even promise him the land. He said, I just want to show you something. I'm leaving all, all these folks just to see something. Most of the time you say, all right, yeah, I'll be back. God wants to show me something. I'll be back. But he said, I want you to leave them so I can show you something. That's why folks are not going to understand you. Don't look, don't look for their validation. They can't give it to you. But we got to be caught up into a place to where we can see as God sees. Will he do that for me? Yes. He can show you your intended end. He already told you his thoughts for you. So when we take our seat with him in heavenly places, which is where Ephesians says we're seated, we're seated with him in heavenly places, that changes our angle of view. Whereas we looked at our obstacles from the ground level before, if we enter into the throne room, we now look down and see as God sees. Without a vision, the Bible says, the people perish. And then he says, if any man lack wisdom, just simply ask, Lord, what in the world is going on in my life right now? I'm not of the crowd that, that believes you can't question God. So the question now becomes, then who am I? If I need to have access to get into the, to his throne room, because although the cloud covered so much of the temple, it covered the entire tabernacle, it generated from over the, the mercy seat. That's where the beginning of it was. And then it came out from his presence. So like Naomi asked Ruth, who are you? When she got back, who are you? Are you, are you Mrs. Boaz yet? Are, are you in the glory cloud yet? In the New Testament, it says that, they, that and, and I think it's in uh, Acts chapter 4, he said they praised God and spake the word boldly. And it says the foundation started to shake. Just because they, they, they got a connection from God. God wants to shake us up. Uh, think of the frustration of someone who has fallen victim to identity crisis. Instead of living life as who they are or who they were intended to live as, they struggle with who they are and consequently what they're called to do in life. This is extremely dangerous if we are taught to covet the traits of other. God has put a unique stamp on each of his children and intends for them to fulfill their calling. When God replaced Moses with Joshua, he did not require Joshua to act like Moses. When he sent Samuel to anoint David, he wasn't looking for another Saul. You know that sometimes who you, who you think God wants you to be has already been rejected by him? What if David would have said, oh, you want me to be king? Okay, well, I, then I, I guess I better act like Saul then. He had already rejected Saul. The reason I'm coming to you is because you are David. I don't want another Saul. That's the problem. Too many Sauls. Too many rejected folk demanding that other folk act like them. Paul and Peter were not mirrored images of each other. In fact, they even disagreed. They had an argument. 
And Paul rebuked what he called the chief apostle. So your transformation is greatly dependent upon the image you behold. If you highly esteem a man or a woman, you will conform to their image, abandoning your own image that's dictated by God. God's trying to mold you into something specific. How many of us are now or have been perpetrators of identity theft? I esteem this person so I, I'm going to steal their identity. With identity theft, you steal somebody's identity in order to gain something that you think they have. People take people's social security numbers because of good credit scores. I can go and I can rack up some credit with it. And they think that if I act like this person and act like that person, God will be pleased with me. You're rejected. We don't want to miss our visitation. And so we falsely live under the identity of others because of our, uh, and I'll quote, perceived view of them. Because really, they're not all you crack them up to be. I always say to people, see what people's closest relatives and friends think of them because they know them best. Don't think that you know somebody better than some, some people that are much closer to them than you are. And you treating them crazy. Why would you treat them like that? They're a good person. They're this, they're that. You really don't. And they're probably sitting there going, oh, but if you really knew them. <laughs> so perception becomes a, a, a very dangerous place to tread upon. So consider the fingerprint, the snowflake, the pupil of the eye, and even the stars. As Abraham's children of faith, or as Abraham's children by faith, we are as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. It is believed that there are more stars than there are grains of sand. And no matter how many children God begets or, or they're born into his kingdom, there will never be two alike. There will never be two of God's children alike. We all have a unique stamp on our lives because I, I really don't want to be anybody else. I've been at a point in time where I wanted to be. But after you realize this kind of stuff and realize that God wants to, to elevate me to a place where I could get into his throne room and I become a, a very personal son to him. And then we don't have to fight with one another because as long as we all stay within our individual relationship with Christ, we have a problem with each other. We should never fear the glory of God when he calls us near or grants us entrance into his throne room or in, into his chambers, there should be sweet communion and attentive hearts. The relationship should be one of love and not fearful terror. Okay, let's get Exodus first. Exodus 20. I'll be through in a minute. Exodus 20, verse 18. See, by them placing God back in his rightful place, they were also simultaneously placing themselves in their rightful place. Because God's relationship with you 
when, when Isaiah saw him and he said he's high and lifted up and his train filled the, filled the temple, that's his glory, by the way, and his protection like Boaz covered Ruth. His train filled the entire temple. And he, the first thing he says is, I messed up. So when you see God where he is, you really don't think so highly of yourself. This is why at first onset, when they saw the cloud appear, they said they, they screamed with a shout and immediately fell to their face. That's all I could do. Exodus 20 and 18 says, All the people saw the lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain and heard the thunder and the long frightening trumpet blast, and they stood at a distance shaking with fear. They said to Moses, You tell us what God says, and we will obey, but don't let God speak directly to us or it will kill us. God told Moses, I want you to build me a tabernacle. Verse, I think it's uh, Exodus 25, verse number 8. The reason for the tabernacle was so that I can dwell with them. I want to personally come and talk to them. But the minute God shows up, they say, he ain't even spoke yet. <laughs> it's the introduction. They say, oh, no, we don't want him talking to us. But oh, wait a minute. This is what this is what God told me to do all this for. I, I'm trying to get you into a relationship with, I'm trying to introduce you to the God you claim to love. They said, you do the speaking. So today, I don't want to talk to God. I want Bishop. I want the prophet so-and-so to talk to me. I want the apostle so-and-so to talk to me. Don't want God to talk to me. But he says, you have access. But I don't want to use my access. I used to work for banks. I worked for Bank of America down at the L.A. Cash Vault, where, where it was very strict security. <laughs> I worked in the check room, but in the cash vault, they said you couldn't even tie your shoe without telling your, your neighbor or telling somebody I'm bending down to tie my shoe. But sometimes we would, if um, somebody forgot their access card, we'd let somebody go downstairs and we'd just say, okay, you can use mine. There's no switching of access cards to the, to the throne of God. There, there's, there's that personal identity check that God's going to do to make sure that it's really you he's talking to and not somebody that you're trying to perpetrate or imitate. He wants to talk to you. We just want, we didn't took the thread and the needle and just sold the curtain back up. Oh, no, Lord, you, well, you, you stay behind this curtain. You stay in there. You stay in the temple. Because we don't want you coming out, marching out of the temple, and, and, and the day of Pentecost, you pour your holy good. Now you're speaking directly to me? What was it that they didn't want to give up? To where they said, we don't want God to talk to us. The God that we cried and said, Lord, come save us from the hand of the Egyptians. And then when he actually comes save you, you say, no, thank you. Take the way that he's presented to you and that he died to make for you. 
I think it's a slap in his face for us to say, oh, I, after all that sacrificing you gave, you spilled your blood, gave your life, no thank you. Moses says, don't be afraid, Moses told them, for God has come in this way to show you his awesome power. He's doing this, showing his glory, so you can see how powerful. Now, Moses has already seen how powerful he was. So that from now on, you will be afraid to sin against him. As the people stood in the distance, Moses entered into the deep darkness where God was. Folks say, walk into the light. Go into the light. The Bible says he's in, he's in the thick darkness. The place where you won't be able to see what's around you. That's where God is. The place that you're fearing the most to go is where he's waiting for you. Luke 9 and 34. Says, while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. Some of you have probably come so close to God's Shekinah glory manifesting. But the closer you got, the more fearful you got. I remember when I first got saved, every time I prayed, I could feel the devil in the room. I, I could feel not just an inkling of something. I can actually almost feel something compressing me. Not physically, but I can feel pressure. That's because I was getting closer to God's glory. And for the longest time, I would stop. That is the devil. Because he knows that if you really get in the presence of God, it is over for him. That's why I said last night. Somebody needed a place where God needed to draw the line for them. A place that they had crossed many times before. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That needed to be your last time. It's time to move on to another glory. So he says they feared. Another version says great terror gripped their hearts as they went into the cloud. They went in the cloud, but it was reluctantly. And when they went in the cloud, because of their fear, they came out and wanted to build three tabernacles. Because they didn't have the right perception once they got in the cloud because the fear messed with their vision they didn't see who the real glorious one out of the three was you you got to see even when God has used another man or woman you got to see the the greater one the one that is most glorified in the situation well the problem is that we didn't glorify him in the situation we gave the glory to the man or the woman that he used so what happens when eternity overrides time? Number one, if we look at the creation account, light disperses darkness. If we look at the burning bush, there is no consumption. If we look at Isaiah, he, his outlook changed on everything around him, starting with himself. When we look at the three Hebrew boys, the fire was the same, but the boys were changed. If we look at Jacob's ladder, we see that, that he laid his head down at the gate of heaven. Just right there. And went to sleep. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, 
He, he was at, on the verge of crossing over from time to eternity for that moment in time, and they went to sleep. When we think about the, exodus from, the exit from Egypt, there was a time barrier. And although, <laughs> I love this, although Pharaoh was hot on their tracks, they had enough time for a baptismal service. Because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that they were all baptized in the sea and under the cloud. Then after they were baptized, they walked through it. Darkness and light. Peter's miraculous jailbreak. We talked about that a couple of retreats ago. Where, where he gave them, he, the, the, the saints prayer summoned the angel and the angel got Peter out of the prison. And were able when time ceases in the moments of eternity, we're able to redeem the time. Time doesn't, uh, time, they say time don't stop for nobody, but the Bible says that we're able to redeem the time. God has given us power to redeem the time. So some things that you lost, God, God will allow you sometimes to go back. And most of the time it's in your prayer sessions, in that time where you're in the cloud. In his presence. And that thing that years ago has you captive now, in a moment in, in eternity, he can bring you out of it. And then when you come out of that session, that thing is no longer a burden on you. How do you think that stuff happens? Stuff that's been riding our, our tails since childhood. And we carried and carried, and even after we got saved, we still carried it. It's still affecting us. And then all of a sudden, one day, after, after a, a certain type of worship, that particular thing is gone because you just spent a moment of eternity. I like what the Matthew Henry commentary said about this. Solomon, the elders, Solomon and the elders of Israel had done what they could to grace the solemnity, the solemnity of the introduction of the ark. But God, by testifying his acceptance of what they did, put the greatest honor upon it. The cloud of glory that filled the house beautified it more than all the gold with which it was overlaid or the precious stones with which it was garnished and even the sacrifices that they offered up. It wasn't till the glory showed up that God outdid what they did to beautify the presence of God. You can try to tell somebody how glorious God is. But at some point, God has got to come and top your description of it. He's got to top your sacrifice on top of it. What you had to give to the kingdom of God, at some time, his glory is going to have to outshine that. Otherwise, after a while, folks will forget what you said because it never became a reality to them. But the key that I want to drive home is that God has to be in his rightful place. We want to put them in the rightful place.